Okay, a reversal story arc. A reversal story arc is a common device that you might find in literature and in film. A reversal story arc. I was trying to think this week of an example uh, that I could use that might be familiar uh, to most of us in the room. And the example I'm going for, example I'm pulling for, is the film Star Wars. Okay, Star Wars. Most of us will have seen Star Wars. So how is there a reversal story arc in Star Wars? Well, I'll tell you what. Think about uh, the main character just for a moment in Star Wars, okay? Luke Skywalker... He starts the film in a pretty lowly position, doesn't he? He's a farmer uh, on the planet Tatooine. I had to look that up, I assure you. That wasn't just knowledge that I had going there. Now, what, what happens to Luke Skywalker? Well, actually, things get a little bit worse for him, don't they? Not only are his mum and dad dead, but the baddies come in, don't they? And they kill his uncle and his auntie as well. So he kind of hits rock bottom, doesn't he? Then what happens? Through a sort of series of events outside of his control, Luke Skywalker, he rises up through the film to what? Like he was a farmer, but at the end of the film, what would you say he was? I'm going for an intergalactic hero, isn't he? Like, do you see what's happened? Do you see that the tables have entirely turned for this guy? There has been this massive reversal in his life. A reversal story arc. So that's Star Wars. But we're not dealing with Star Wars today, are we? But isn't it true that the same sort of thing is what we've witnessed in the book of Esther? Isn't that right? Like last week, if you were here, we saw the anticipation of what? The anticipation of a truly great reversal for the people of God. Isn't that right? And that's something that we're going to see come to fruition today. That they too were in a very lowly position, weren't they? Remember where they are? They've got this decree of death hanging over them. And they go from that... To a position by the end of the book today, where what are they doing? They're celebrating. Like they are rejoicing. There is jubilation in the safety that God has provided for them. You see the point, I'm sure. There has, for the people of Israel as well, there has been a reversal. A truly wonderful reversal. So this is what I suggest. I suggest that together as a congregation... We look to see how this apex of this reversal comes about. So would you do this with me? Would you turn back in your Bibles to Esther chapter 9? Would you grab your Bibles? I'm sure you were given one as you came in the door if you didn't bring one. If you turn Esther 9, it's on page 507. And we'll consider, first of all, the reality of holy War. The reality of holy war. That's the first thing we've got to think about this morning. Okay. First question for you. When does the chapter begin? When does it begin? Do you see it? The chapter begins on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Now hopefully, if you've been here for the sermon series, you see the significance in that date. Do you you see what this means? 
The chapter begins on the day that we have been waiting for. The day not only that Haman had set for the destruction of the Jews, but this is also the day that Mordecai had set for the defense, the self-defense of the Jews. And we've got to that day at last. We've been waiting for that day for months and chapters. And finally, it's here, the day of destruction. The day of self-defense is here. But surprisingly, we're not left in any suspense about what happens, are we? Like in the way that Esther's been written so far, you would expect the author to sort of drag out attention about this day, and he doesn't do it. Look straight away in verse one. You see what happens? We are told the outcome. The day comes and there's lots of people and they, they attack the Jews. And what do the Jews do? They, they fight. Oh yeah, they fight. They fight back. And what's the outcome? The Jews win the day, don't they? The Jews were told in the very first verse here that they defeat, they conquer all of those who oppose them. So we're not left in any suspense. I do think, though, we're maybe left with a problem. Do you see what it is? I mean, the Jews here, they don't just defend themselves, do they? I mean, it's a lot more than that in Esther chapter 9. I mean, the Jews, they don't, it's not just self-defense. I mean, the Jewish people here, they really go to town on their enemies. I mean, they really here. They carry the battle. They take the fight to all those who oppose them. And did you get a note of the figures that we're talking about here? I mean, the Jewish people, the people that go there, they kill, what was it? Over 75,000 men in these short days. They kill over 75,000 men? And let's be honest about this. Come on. Doesn't that idea sit a little bit uncomfortably with us doesn't it are you agreeing with that 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 we we look on at the people of god here killing this amount of people maybe we're asking doesn't that seem a little bit ethically suspect all that amount of blood shed what are we supposed to do with this like what are we supposed to make of this episode well friends what we've got to understand is that throughout scripture, we find a concept that we might call holy war. Have you heard that concept before, holy war? What is holy war? Well, friends, holy war is when Almighty God, he acts in righteous judgment. He acts in judgment over his enemies and over sinners. But what does he use in judgment? Doesn't use fire from heaven. No, that's not holy war. He doesn't use a great flood like he did with Noah. What does he use in holy war? He uses his very own people. You see that? You get that? In holy war, God is acting in righteous judgment. We see it in scripture time and time again. And what's the weapon of choice for almighty God? In holy war, the weapon of choice is his very own people. So do you see, wait a minute, do you see the question that you and I have got to ask ourselves just now? 
If we are going to understand Esther chapter 9, if we're going to see, is this bloodshed, is it unnecessary, or is this God in action? The question that you and I have got to ask and answer, is Esther 9 holy war or not? Is this what we're dealing with here? Is this God in action? Is it holy war? And listen to the answer to the question. Absolutely it is. See, you answer me this. Who are these 75,000 men that lie dead? I mean, are they just innocent bystanders? Are they just random people that have been caught up in the fury of the the last couple of days? Is that who these 75,000 people are? No, who are they? They are the ones who have sided with Haman, the Agagite. And who is he? You know this by now. Who is Haman, the Agagite? He is the descendant of the wicked king of the Amalekites, isn't he? The Amalekites. The ones who needlessly attacked the people of God as they fled Egypt. The Amalekites, the ones that God has promised to eradicate from this earth. Do you see the point? There is motive in Esther chapter 9. Motive for God's holy water. These aren't people that, that just happen to get caught up in it. These aren't sort of innocent random souls. Who are they? These people are people who stand in fixed and total opposition and hatred of a righteous and a perfect God. So there's motive. Um, I, I do want you to notice something else. And that is the fact that this section here, it bears some of the hallmarks of holy war. Some of the hallmarks. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what, let's do this together as a congregation. Well, wait, let's do this together. If you've got your Bible there, if you would look at just what seems to be an insignificant detail at the end of verse 10. Let's do this together. So look at the end of verse 10. It doesn't seem to be much of a detail. Uh, okay, see if you miss it at the end of verse 10. You'll notice that the same detail you will find in verse 15. And then, if you miss it in verse 15, you'll find it in verse 16 as well. And we're maybe sitting there thinking, that's not that strange, you know? It doesn't seem to be a particularly significant detail, does it? But yet, it is for the author, because the author sent the readers, you make sure you get this, I'll repeat it, and just in case you don't get it there, I'm going to repeat it again. What's the detail? The Jews refused to take plunder from their enemies. Now, why, why did they do that? If you were on the ball when you were in here last week, you maybe noticed that in the second decree, Xerxes' decree, the one where he's saying to the Jews, you, you know, you defend yourselves. In that decree, the Jews were actually given express permission to take the plunder. So the king says to them, okay, defend yourselves and see if you want to take any of that stuff for yourself. Go ahead and do it. He gives them express permission. And yet we are told time and time and time and time again here, they didn't do it. They didn't take any plunder. Why not? Do you see? Friends, it's because the people of Israel in Esther chapter 9, they understood very well that this was holy war. 
And they understood that throughout their history, from Abraham onwards and his interaction with the king of Sodom, that in conditions and times of holy war, that the plunder was never, ever to be touched. That the plunder in times of holy war was always, always to be left alone. Do you see it? This isn't just barbaric nonsensical attack from the Jews. This is God in action. This is holy war. And even if you're sitting there still unconvinced by this judgment of God, I would ask you to consider Haman's sons. Didn't you feel a little bit sorry for Adrian this morning? Uh, I felt very sorry for Adrian Little did he know a couple of days ago when he agreed to do the reading uh, that I had sort of ten very sneaky names up my sleeve for Adrian to, to read out. And he did a sterling job of it. But what names they were, weren't they? The names of Haman's sons. But did you notice what happened to the sons? What would you say to me? What happened to Haman's sons? Would you say, well, they got, they were killed. Well, that's true. They, you know, this, this evil man's line is wiped from the earth, they, yet they're killed. What else happened to Haman's sons? Did you notice it? Esther demands that their bodies are taken out and they are hanged from the gallows. Now, aren't you reading that and thinking, well, wait a minute, why would you do that? They're already dead. Like, they're just bodies. Like, why would it be the case that, that Esther is so adamant before the king that the bodies are taken out and hanged on the gallows? Do you see the answer? In scripture, in times of holy war, the leaders of the enemies and those associated with them, often what should happen? Often they had to be hanged. Their bodies had to be hanged on a tree. Why? To display the curse of Almighty God upon their lives. Friends, are you with me at this point? Like, do you see what is happening here? This isn't the Jews doing something utterly atrocious. This isn't them doing something over the top. These numbers here, they're not barbaric numbers. Yes, it's self-defense. But I want you to read Esther 9 and see what's happening. This is a righteous God, a perfect God, acting in justice and judgment over his enemies. So I hope we have got a handle on on what's happening here and and why this happens the way it does. There's something else we obviously have to do here. We need to apply this. Like you, you look at this story and, and it, it seems maybe quite strange, but what does it mean for you? How do we apply this circumstance? Well, I think surely there are maybe a couple of questions that are sitting above us, like banding about here, that, that really we're asking and, and, and need to be answered here, aren't there? How about this is the first one. This is holy war in God's word. Is this how we are supposed to roll today is it now you you see the question is maybe not as silly as it might sound here the people of god are are acting in a violent way they're going to their enemies so in this situation in the 21st century when we know areas of persecution around this world 
And we know that there are some horrific things today happening to our brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Aren't there? Today, that's happening. So it's maybe not such a silly question to think, well, should we not do this? Or should there not be some sort of retaliation for this? Should there not be some sort of, even if it's a small amount of physical defense or physical violence perpetrated? Hear the answer. Hear it loudly and clearly. No. And never. See, consider Luke's gospel. Consider what, what happened when John and James, they were, they were enraged with fury, weren't they? And they wanted violence to happen. They wanted uh, fire to come from heaven and burn up their enemies. And what did our Lord say? What did our Lord do? He rebuked them. And don't you see why? Friend, you and I, we live in a different era, a different age of redemptive history to the, to the people who lived in the, in the time of Esther, don't we? This is a different age. And now, should you and I bear weapons? Should we? What do you think I'm going to say? I'm going to say no. Yes, we should bear weapons. What sort of weapons? The arms we bear today are spiritual arms, aren't they? Because the war that the church fights today, it is most clearly a spiritual war. But I do think there's a, a second question, and I'll tell you this, I think it is much more pressing. God shows you something about himself in this chapter, doesn't he? I mean, this is holy war. God shows you that he is a God who judges sin. He's a God who does not tolerate unrighteousness. You see it there. Wow, don't you see it very clearly? He does not tolerate sin. So do you see the question? Ready for the question? How then do we escape? I mean, everyone in this room, all of us in here, what can be true of us? What's true of us? We are sinners. Now that means that everyone in this room, everyone of you, me included, we fall into a category. And what is that category? It is people deserving the wrath of God. We deserve, we fall short of the standard that God demands for salvation. We, we don't hit that mark. None of us do. How do we avoid this then? If God judges sin, how do we avoid it? Do you know the good news, friends? Listen to me just now. To provide a way of escape, to provide a way of salvation, what's God done? God the Father he has gone to holy war. But against whom? Against his very own son. For us. Isn't that right? God the Father going to holy war against his very own son. That what Christ has done for his people is not only face a, a brutal and violent death, but what happened to his body? Where was it hanged? It was hanged from a tree, wasn't it? Why? To show us all that he bore the very curse of Almighty God in his 
death to show us all that it was holy war. Friends, isn't it something for you, for me, for the people of God? God the Father has gone to holy war, but against his very own beloved Son. You see here the reality of holy war. Another thing that we we must note in this portion of Scripture, I was going to say that we see, but we don't. We hear uh, the racket of perpetual celebration uh, in Esther chapter 9, don't we? We hear the racket of perpetual celebration. Now, if you're a student here, I know I've got a few students in the congregation, if you're a student, or if you can think back to the dim and distant past when you were once a student, you will know this. That 8.30 on a Saturday morning is not a time that a student wants to be disturbed. Is it? For many students, 8.30 on a Saturday morning effectively is the middle of the night. Well, when I was a student in Glasgow many, many years ago, and you'll sense my ongoing bitterness about this, every single Saturday morning without fail, every Saturday morning at half past eight, I would be rudely awoken, wait for this, by a marching band. (laughs) I would walk up and back down the street outside my flat every Saturday morning and you could set your uh, clock by this and so what would I do I would roll out of bed not best pleased they would go to the window and there they were you know with their flutes and their drums and their brass instruments and there's all these kids with them and everyone's singing and everyone's shouting and what a noise it was now isn't Uh, Isn't that, though, the sort of picture that we come to now? Like, such a contrast, isn't there? Like, we, we, we did have this scene of blood shed and death, but it moves so quickly in Esther chapter 9 into this scene of rejoicing and, and noise and, and celebration, that not only are the people of God found in celebration after the fight, a second thing happens. Now, get the second thing. Mordecai commands the Jews, the people of Israel, to repeat these festivities every single year thereafter to repeat the celebration without fail. So do you see the second thing? Do you see what's established here? There is established an ongoing, an annual celebration. Now, what I actually find interesting about this is the date that Mordecai sets for the celebration. If you were there, what date do you think he's going to set for the celebration? Like, you know, he says, right, next year, guys, you've got to remember this and you've got to celebrate. What date do you think he's going to say? You remember, don't you, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. You're going to think, well, surely it's the day of the battle, the big day that we'll be waiting for that day, right? Remember that from... And it's not. It's the day afterwards. Did you notice that? The people are to celebrate on the actual, the 14th and the 15th day of the month. Now, why on earth is it, is it like that? Why is it the day afterwards? Do you see the answer? 
Do you see the answer? It's because these people are celebrating not the battle, but they are celebrating the subsequent rest that they now enjoy from their enemies. I mean, they have been delivered. They're celebrating not the big battle and all the bloodshed. They are celebrating the rest, the rest. Now, remember the rest. We'll come back to it. But before we do, I want to tell you something that you already know. Okay? See, Jews today, throughout London and throughout the world, 21st century Jews, they still observe this feast. I'm sure you knew that, didn't you? You knew that uh, Jews throughout the world, they, they celebrate the festival or the holiday of Purim. You know, it's that taken from the word for the lots that Haman threw to set the date for the destruction. And do you know this? It, it, well, I was reading about it a lot this week and it sounds like a lot of fun, you know? So the Jews, they gather together and what they do is they, they take their kids home and they get the kids to make homemade rattles and shakers and this sort of stuff. And then the Jews, they come back together, they meet, and they read aloud the book of Esther. And this is the fun part of it. They read aloud the, the, the book of Esther. And every single time that Haman's name is read out, you've got to get your rattle on the go, and you've got to boo, and you've got to hiss. Brilliant. And then every time that Mordecai's name or, or Esther's name is read out, what do you do? You know, you shout and you scream and you you jump for joy. It's a a big celebration from the people uh, of other Jews. It's like a lot of fun. So here's the question that obviously follows on from that. If the people in the Bible are commanded to celebrate this, and if the Jews today celebrate this, why is it that we... In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we not celebrate this? Do you see the answer to that? The answer is that we do. Or at least we celebrate what this event here merely foreshadows. See, what do we know? We know that God's covenant with Abraham is greater than the Jewish people realize. Isn't that true? Jewish people, they look at the covenant and they, they, they see that it's made in their eyes with just an ethnic people group and we know it's not like that, don't we? We know it's bigger and it's, and it's much better and brighter than that and we know that anyone, anywhere, can come into a covenantal relationship with God. How? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the protection that the people receive in Esther chapter 9, what does it do? What does it anticipate? What does it point to? It points to the spiritual protection that God provides for his true covenant people, the church of the Lord Jesus. And walk with me. Think about this for a moment. How then is it that you and I, how do we celebrate these things? I'm saying we we do this. We celebrate. How is that possible? Is it once a year? Do we have an event where we get together with, with rattles and whistles and we boo and we hiss? How do we celebrate this stuff? 
You see it, don't you? Every single Sunday, every Lord's Day, the people of God, think of Esther 9, the people of God, we gather together and we rejoice in what? What do we rejoice in? The rest that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ has brought you and me. Don't you see? We celebrate together every single week the greater victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us over our foes. We do this. And isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. It is beautiful, isn't it? But you must see that there's something better as well. Because one day what's going to be true of you and I who are in Christ Jesus? What's going to happen to you? Hmm? One day, each of us in Christ Jesus, we will finally enter God's holy rest. One day, the, the, the battle here pales in insignificance in some ways. One day, the battle with evil's finally, obviously going to be won. And the, the, the war against sin's going to be completely over. And you and I are going to walk together into God's perfect and eternal rest. And what happens there? Hmm? What happens there? Isn't that obvious? Yes, he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. And there's not going to be any more death. And there's not going to be any more mourning. But what are we going to do there? Oh, the rest. We are going to celebrate. You and I are going to celebrate. There in heaven above, there will be from us the racket of perpetual ongoing celebration and it will be the celebration of the rest that the Lord Jesus Christ has won for you and he's won for me so we see the reality of holy war but we also see here the racket of perpetual celebration there's a last thing and it is the requirement of a greater deliverer the third, the last thing the requirement of a greater deliverer and I want to start this with a question, this, this third last heading. And again, you're going to think this is maybe the most obvious question that I've ever asked. But I'm going to ask it anyway. This is the close of the book. This is chapter 10, just a few verses in chapter 10. This is the close of the book. Here's the question. Who is the main character in this story? Like we're finished it. We've got to uh, Esther 10. A bit longer than we thought. But we got there. Took us longer. Who's the main character in this book? And are you looking at me thinking, oh, seriously, man, the book is even entitled Esther. How, how do you not know the answer to this question? Esther is the, the main character of the book, okay? Is that right? Because I'll tell you that throughout the centuries, many people have thought that's not the case. Many people have thought, actually, Mordecai is the hero. Mordecai is the, the main character. Like the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it names Mordecai much more frequently than it names Esther. And so many people think that Mordecai is the, 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 the main character. What's the, what's the right answer to that question? I'm going for both of them. I'm going to sit in the fence and say, surely they both play an equally prominent role in this book. 
But I, I want you to see this. I wonder if you'd agree with this, that surely you do, that Mordecai himself is the focus as the book closes. Isn't that right? That we get into these very last verses. The spotlight kind of shifts and it's on one man. And the spotlight in chapter 10 is on Mordecai and Mordecai and he alone. And because of that, I would ask you to do this with me. Would you consider his reversal story arc? Think about Mordecai enters the story in such a lowly position. He's not a farmer, but he is a Jew under Persian rule. And things then get worse for him, don't they? He suffers the humiliation of rejection by the king and he's under a sentence of death. He's at rock bottom. But how does it end? Do you see to where he has risen? Chapter 10 speaks only of his exaltation. It speaks only of the preeminence of this man. And what's the emphasis of his role? Verse 3, we're told, not only has this man brought peace, but where is he? He's in second in command in the Persian Empire. He can continue to intercede and to mediate for the people before the throne. He's in second in command here. Do you see it? What the tables have turned. What a reversal. And what glory for this man, Mordecai. But I, I, I can't end the, the series without at least mentioning what you have seen to be a very odd verse in chapter 10, haven't you? I mean, look what we are told. Do you see verse 1 here? Isn't it odd? It speaks of Xerxes implementing new taxes. And like we're thinking, wait a minute, we're getting to the, 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 the final bit, the climax of the book. How is this book going to end? It must be glorious. And the author says, oh, and Xerxes, he implemented some new taxation system. Doesn't that seem to be almost anticlimactic, doesn't it? I wonder, do you see what he's saying there? See, great though Mordecai was, where were the people of God? They were still under the rule and authority of Persia. Do you see it? That's what he's saying. He's saying, great though Mordecai was, and he's, and he's delivered people from death, and he's wonderful. There still has to be this taxation system. They still have to pay money as Xerxes. You see what he's reminding us about here? God is showing us that great though Mordecai was, there needed to be a greater deliverer than he. And I'll end the sermon series like this. By reminding you today that that greater deliverer has come. And in a very real sense this morning, by his Holy Spirit, that greater deliverer is in this very room just now. And friends, I would urge you to focus on that, especially if you are a Christian in here who, like this book, the book of Esther, is not perhaps seeing very clearly the presence and the reality 
of Almighty God. Would you see today and cling on to the fact that you have a great Redeemer? You have a greater Deliverer. And would you just consider his reversal story arc? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, he entered this earth in such a lowly position, didn't he? And his situation got worse, did it not? That he faced further humiliation and oppression, opposition and torture and death. But then what happened? Don't you see, like Mordecai, what happened? The Lord Jesus Christ was then exalted. That he was raised up to preeminence over all people, wasn't he? That he was risen to resurrection life. That he ascended the skies to glory. And what does he do there now in heaven? Don't you see, like Mordecai? He has brought peace to you and I. He's brought peace to his people. And having done that, what does he do today? He continues to mediate and to intercede for you and for me before the throne. Do you see the reversal? Do you see it? Do you see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? So friend, if you are a Christian in here who is despairing like this book in the apparent absence of God, if you are despairing that God does not seem to be answering your prayers, then look again at the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and do this with the rest of us today. Rejoice in him. Rejoice, rejoice in the rest. Rejoice in the deliverance. Rejoice in your salvation, will you? Rejoice in his fighting and defeating of sin and death. Rejoice in your deliverance. Rejoice even if in the circumstances of your life today, God seems veiled. Let's pray.